Romans chapter 4 begins like this, Paul speaking. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited in righteousness. In our early scripture here in Romans chapter 4, we hear mention uh, of the fact uh, of the great faith of Abraham. So I want to look at, first, I want to look at three things this morning principally, and I want to give you a, a sort of a, a title here for the message, uh, and I'm calling it Significance, Strength, and Success. So uh, we hear the, the faith of this man, Abraham, or at that point, Abram. Matter of fact, it says, Abram, believe the Lord. Boy, there's a lot in that statement. Abraham placed his trust or his faith in Jehovah God, and, and it was this faith that was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham's faith was in God, and God provided salvation to humanity through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Everyone's on board, right? I want to just give you a real quick Old Testament and New Testament synopsis here. The Old Testament believers, like Abraham, placed their trust in God, and as such, in a very real sense, they were looking forward to the cross of Christ. Though they could not have known the full nature of the work of Christ, they placed their faith in God, and the cross is the way that God redeemed them according to that faith. All right. Now, as New Testament believers, as we are today, we look back. We're not looking forward to the cross. We're looking back at the cross of Christ. We've received the fullness of the truth that redemption is found in Christ alone. And while Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, we know that Abraham's faith was counted to him only because God was going to send a Savior. The older uh, believers, I'm thinking back to something I read from the famed uh, 20th century, uh, it seems like that's a long time ago when we say the 20th century, and the reason is because it was a long time ago, but the noted 20th century pastor A.W. Tozer once wrote this, and I quote, absolute candor is an indispensable requisite to salvation, end of quote. So this morning, my desire is to just give you, be plain spoken, and give you candid things that you will uh, cause you to examine the faith of Abraham and then in turn seriously consider your own. I'm convinced that as we do, we're going to discover that the true object of faith for all of humanity is Jesus Christ. There are not, in fact, 101 salvations. Faith, not works, is the way to righteousness. Faith, not works, is the way to righteousness and salvation as found 
in Christ alone. Now in verse 2 of this chapter 4 of Romans, the Apostle Paul makes it clear, he makes a distinction between faith and works. And I'm glad he did because there are other writers that do that too, but this is very, very poignant and very important. We don't need to work to earn a right standing with God. When we enter into faith in Jesus Christ, we inherit all of his blessings of what he called the new covenant. We enter, you see, we enter into a covenant relationship with God through Christ. Now listen very carefully to the next thing I'm going to say. It is not, it is not, I repeat, that our faith saves us. It is that our faith is like a road which leads us to the cross of Christ where we are washed clean in the blood of Christ and we receive the atonement for our sin and we're completely transformed, hear me now, hear me, by His grace. In the church, we use a lot of churchy talk and those of you that are new to church, you, you, you understand that we do even though you don't understand some of the words. One of the words we have used a lot is the word, and, and, and it's a good word, is the word atonement. And I want to break that down real easily for you. I'm not even putting it on the screen because I know you can have it on the screen of your mind. But we seldom define the word even though we use it a lot. So just think of it this way. If you break that word up into three parts, it says at one meant atonement at one meant and that's all you have to remember because on the cross Christ made atonement he made it at one meant for our sin and to give us clear access to his grace now I want to jump to Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to begin to read at verse 8, and you may want to follow along on that one as well. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's great. Those are great words. Many of you have read them and some of you have... Uh, committed them to memory, and I know for some, even there's a, maybe a life verse in there. But perhaps you've heard the lie as well, and if you haven't, then you probably haven't been around for very long, that the biblical account of Christ is in no way unique among the world's religions. Perhaps you've even been told that it's just a nice story with the power to encourage and that's about where it ends. Maybe you've also observed that so many 
from the outside and even from inside what we call the church have abandoned the biblical teaching. Hear me now that it's only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we are made at one with God. And so, before you believe the lie, allow me to share some of the differences between the authentic grace of the cross and the counterfeit grace of world religions. One prominent religion does speak of forgiveness of a compassionate and a merciful leader, but all of its promises in, in regard to anything resembling grace or what we believe are only made to those who are what we call meritorious, in other words, those who've worked for it. Hmm. Where would you be if your faith and your salvation depended on that? Where would I be? So only those people whose merits have been weighed in that, in that, by the leader's scales are entitled to mercy, whereas in the gospel of Christ, it's good news of mercy to the undeserving. You see, the symbol of genuine grace is the cross of Christ, not the scales of some religious leader. When grace must be earned, it's not grace at all. When grace must be earned, it's not grace at all. The 4th century Christian theologian St. Augustine of Hippo wrote this, and I love it, for grace is given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. Love that. I love that. Unlike other beliefs where a person must work to be worthy of mercy, how would you know if you've worked enough? How would you know if you ever got there? How would you know if you're going up some ladder that you're at the top and you have no more rungs? Genuine grace frees us to do every good work. In Christ, we're enabled by grace to do good works. We don't work to earn mercy. Mercy works in us. Amen. And then I go over to that great Galatians chapter, chapter 2, and I read verse 20, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But you say, Pastor Bob, surely there's at least one of those major world religions, something out there must identify with the genuine grace of God as we know it. Surely, Pastor, genuine grace can be found somewhere else. Really, it's hard to believe otherwise. Well, let's take a look. Because there's another well-known Eastern belief system that has no orthodoxy to speak of. There are many interpretations of this particular ism, and its practice varies widely from one part of the world to another. It is an ancient religion. It allows for a radically varied belief system where there's no such thing as an absolute truth. And when you find something that's, that states we have no absolute truth, you know you're on the wrong track. And this one is basically a system of pagan beliefs in which adherents worship forces of nature which have been personalized and have become heroic beings or gods, small g, or goddesses. And there can be no genuine grace because there's no genuine God. 
Without God, there's no grace. It is basically a belief in that religion, in everything and nothing, all at the same time. And when nothing is absolute, then there can be nothing authentic because there's no authority. These baseless faiths, I'm not going to spend a lot more time on them, do not pass the test, for they fail to provide the grace, hear it again, which is found in Christ alone. Say, why a message like this? Because if there was ever a day when Christians need to be grounded, when Christians need to be solid, when Christians need to know what they know and why they know it, it's today. It's right where you are, right where you're sitting, right where you're living, right where you're doing life. All of the world's religions bother me if I were to take them seriously, which I don't, but the one which concerns me the most is something that was often called the New Age Movement. It's a false type of religion, too. Other people call it secular humanism. It concerns me deeply because its philosophies and teachings have influenced many of God's people down through recent years, and that is a concern to me, and I'm very sad to say that. The New Age Movement is not so much a religion as it is a collection of modern ideas, and they're not really modern, there's nothing new under the sun, that have permeated our educational institutions and our churches, and it's taken a hold on our society and our culture in so many decadent and damaging ways. I'm always impressed with the human tendency to try to change reality by renaming things. And, and if, you try, if you took a notebook and tried to keep up with that today, you would, it would drive you bananas. I mean, you would go crazy. Every day there's another new thing coming out. Well, it isn't new at all, but it's same old something, but they just renamed it now. You see, in academic papers, they, they, they pour out these, these uncommon things and they, but they disguise them in academic jargon, and, I, and then they act like they just said something really profound. May I remind you that profundity is wrapped in simplicity? The simpler it is to understand, the more profound it is. And so part of the process of communication you see, is exposing several layers of truth. Most people are not at all interested in exposing truth. And putting that truth in varied language so that it comes across to any and all who are listening. Now, all of which I said to say, I've always enjoyed stories that expose that kind of nonsense. Like, for instance, for instance take the, uh, the business of changing titles. And, and I don't mean this personally, and there's no offense meant by it, and it's not even meant to be comical, but, but just the things I've seen in a few short years. We used to have a garbage man. And I always highly respected those people because they did a phenomenal job that a lot of the people wouldn't even think of doing, and they would always, and if I could go and clean up after them, if something happened on their run, I would do that. Uh, but we don't have any garbage men now. We have sanitation engineers. Fine. We used to have janitors in the building, uh, certain buildings. We don't have any now. We have director of custodial services or environmental displacement engineers. I know. It sounds, but it, I'm just telling you what it is. Nothing's changed, but we have to have a new title for it because that'll really sound snappy. 
It reminds me of the man who was eating lunch one day at, a, at, a, at an organic, natural food restaurant. And when he looked down into his soup, he was disturbed by what he saw. He called the waitress over and he said, young lady, there's dirt in my soup. And she looked at it carefully and said, oh, no, oh, no, 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 oh, no, sir, that's earth. The chief way that the New Age movement has impacted society is pushing its view that there are no absolutes in morality. And boy, has it done a good job. If we are all our own gods, as it were, then that means we decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Good luck with that. This is the worldview of so many people in the culture today. And I am terribly afraid as I see the sunset years. It is, it, 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 I'm afraid that we're living in a society in which so many see themselves as the center of the universe. In a society in which that is the predominant worldview, is it really any wonder that we're in such a state of madness and chaos and disruption in our, in our times and in this very period of time where we find ourselves? Not, not in my mind it isn't. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 20, here's what the wise prophet wrote, and I quote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them. Oh, we have to learn to trust in Christ alone. Trust begins with truth. Trust is almost spelled <laughs> like truth. Easy to remember, trust begins with truth. And if you'll adopt that, you'll find that you are not trusting a lie anymore. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, very familiar uh, if you're around the Bible at all, where Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is trustworthy. This is the truth, and it declares to us that we do not have to work to earn mercy, and there's a God in heaven who reigns supreme over his creation, even in the year 2021. So our significance and our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. And he is our one solid and sure foundation. A number of years ago, there was a convention, some kind of a scientific convention, calling in people from various 
uh, areas of interest in the science world. It was a beautiful resort area around a lake, and it was quite a setting. Well, after the first day's proceedings, there was a mathematician, a physicist, an astronomer, and a molecular biologist, and they were friends, and they got together, and they decided to hire a boatman to row them around on the, on the lake. So as they sat in the boat, you can imagine the conversation. They discussed the string theory, bubble universes, the guy hypothesis, all kinds of abstruse topics that you and I have never heard of. The biologist noticed the, the boatman looking at them from the corner of his eye, and he asked them, what, what do you think of these ideas? And the boatman replied, I didn't understand any of it. I don't know what you're talking about. And, and the astronomer asked him how, how far he had been educated. He said, uh, I can't even read. And the physicist said, I, I hate to say this, but you seem to have wasted a good part of your life. And the boatman remained silent. By now, they were out in the middle of that deep lake, far from shore. And as often happens on a big lake, a sudden storm whipped up, and the waves started churning and heaving and a little chaotic. And the next thing they know, that little boat flipped over. So the boatman started swimming for shore. And the scientist types cried out best they could, Help! Help! We can't swim! To which the boatman called back, I, 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 I hate to say this, but you seem to have wasted your whole life. <laughs> Likewise, some people think Christianity is for the unintelligent, the uneducated, and the unsophisticated. But Christians are, by far, history proves this, the most knowledgeable religious group there is with plenty of scientists, doctors, educators, whatever, as adherents. And you can go right down the list. The second part of my message is coming from the book of Colossians, and so I'm now going to move over to Colossians chapter 1, and just verses 15 to 20, I'm not going to read them, but I want to tell you what's in there, because, because Paul succinctly addresses who Jesus is. He's the creator of the universe and the earth. He's the Lord of the living and the dead. He's the mediator between God and man. And then we come to chapter 2. He presents, he presents what we have in, in God or in Christ because of who he is. You see, there are no greater riches than the riches of his wisdom and his knowledge. There's no stronger ground to stand on than to be rooted and built up in him. And there is no greater rule above every power and authority on earth or in heaven. So, here we have, in Christ and in Christ alone, we have our significance. Secondly, Jesus Christ is our strength. Now, Colossians chapter 2, 
I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea. This is Colossians 2, verse 1. And for all who have not met me personally, Paul says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. By the way, the mystery of God is Jesus Christ himself, namely Christ. That's what Paul says in whom are hidden all the treasures, if you want it, here it is, of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, this is a, a, a famous Jewish story. One, one night, a poor Jewish man named Isaac, what else? <laughs> Son of Jacob, Jacob, from Krakow, Poland, in a very vivid dream, saw a buried treasure hidden under a particular bridge in the distant city of Prague. For the next two weeks, he dreamed of that particular city, that same bridge, that buried treasure. The man was determined to walk all the way to Prague to see it for himself. So on, upon reaching the city... After many days of walking, he recognized the city from the dream. He even recognized the bridge from the dream. So he went down underneath the bridge to look for the treasure. And as he started down there, he was suddenly apprehended, grabbed by the back of his neck, by a big soldier who never said a word but just picked him up and dragged him to the nearby prison for interrogation. The soldier sat him on a chair and said, All right, what were you doing prowling around underneath the bridge? Well, not knowing what else to say, yeah, he said, Isaac blurted out, he just told the truth. He said, I had a dream a few weeks ago that there was a buried treasure underneath the bridge and I was looking for it. And immediately, of course, the soldier bursts out in mocking laughter and he says, you stupid Jew, don't you know you can't believe what you see in your dreams? Why, for the last two weeks, I myself have had a dream. I think I've had it every night. That far away in the city of Krakow, in the house of some Jew by the name of Isaac, son of Jacob, is a treasure buried beneath the stove in his kitchen. Can you believe that? Wouldn't it be the, yeah. Wouldn't it be the most idiotic thing in the world if I could go all the way to Krakow to, to look for that and to find some Jew that doesn't exist, who maybe he's one of a hundred or two hundred man called Isaac, son of Jacob, probably, in that city. And I could waste a lifetime looking for a treasure that isn't even there. And with a robust laughter, the soldier then opened the door, gave the Jewish man a kick, and let him go. Well, Isaac, son of Jacob, naturally walked back to Krakow several days to his house, where he moved his stove in his own kitchen found the treasure buried there, and lived to a ripe old age as a very, very rich man. 
In the same manner, my friend, Paul admonished believers, hear this, to look to the Lord instead of to the world for their intellectual and spiritual development. In verse 1 of Colossians 2, Paul characterizes his struggles for the church at Colossae and Laodicea. He's using words like that mean agony, the word uh, I contend or I'm struggling for you. And, and then he says how much or how great is my struggling. And then he agonizes more for the church. He said who's united in love. He was assuming that was happening, and I hope it was, to comprehend all the riches they already had and the treasures they already own, treasures of God in the person of Christ that are available to them. And this fortune doesn't refer to possessions of the world. It's bound to the person of Christ. I don't know how many times I've said that today, but I'm going to say it one more time. Your treasure is not dependent on what the world can give you. It is bound by the person of Christ. Wow. Wow. The believer must be informed, not ignorant, but informed of the immense resources and intellectual property they have at their disposal. In Christ, you have the riches that are, that are applied to your account. Oh, man. Uh, you have the riches of kindness and tolerance and patience and the riches of his glory and the riches of his grace and the riches of the glorious inheritance and the riches of unsearchable riches and the glorious riches of mystery, the mystery of God, even Christ. How precious, how privileged, how priceless are the other riches of Christ to us. But these virtues are incomplete. Listen here. Without wisdom and knowledge from above. Wisdom and knowledge are two sides of a coin. Everybody here knows that a coin has two sides. Inadequate, incompetent, and inflexible without the other. You can't have one side of a coin without the other. Wisdom always precedes knowledge in the Bible. Always. Because wisdom is application. Knowledge is merely academic. Wisdom is how to live. Knowledge is what to learn. Wisdom is tested in the crucible. Knowledge is taught in the classroom. Wisdom is insight. Knowledge is information. Knowledge without wisdom is arrogance. But wisdom without knowledge is ignorance. Now, in Christ alone, I say there's no foundation that is steadier and nothing else from significance to strength can lead us to success. Colossians chapter 2, I'm still there, verses 4 and on. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord... 
Continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him. Notice all these great words. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing. Here it is, Christian, with thanksgiving. Yeah. How many have ever heard of a 3.9 earthquake? How many have ever heard of a 4.5 earthquake? How many have ever heard of a 5.1 or 5.0 earthquake? I dare say today none of us have ever really thought about a 7.9 earthquake. But on May the 12th, 2008, it happened in Sichuan, China. It left the number of dead and missing at over 100,000 and 5 million people homeless. 7.9 magnitude. Uh, the Chinese say it was 8.0, so we won't quibble over that one-tenth. So experts were wondering why uh, some four-story schools toppled over, just like, just like cards. Whereas 10-story hotels... We're fine. Well, you have to understand how these things are constructed. They're using high-quality concrete, embedding extra iron rods, tying them tightly into bundles with strong wire, ensuring that all the components of the floors, the walls, the columns, everything uh, are there, and that instead of toppling, that in a storm like that, they will just sway, but they won't go over. Six structural engineers, and probably more, an earthquake expert, asked a newspaper to, to analyze uh, the online photographs in a slideshow of the wreckage. It was quite something to see. And they concluded independently that inadequate um, steel reinforcement, or rebar as we call it, was used in the concrete columns supporting the schools. And that's why they toppled. And they also found that the school's precast hollow concrete, slab floors, if you will, and the walls didn't appear to be securely joined together. Whoops. The most pronounced failing seemed to be inadequate steel reinforcement of the concrete columns supporting the schools. There were too few rebar reinforcing rods and too little of the binding wire. So there's nothing really, when you look at that skeleton, really holding all the pieces together. Really, the rods, the wire, the slabs, the concrete were inadequate. And a well-known builder from a nearby city recognized the faulty columns and flooring problems when they went in to investigate. And here's what he said. The ratio of sand and concrete in this is wrong. And these buildings fell down, listen to this, because of cheap materials. Now here's my conclusion on that. If the foundation is weak, the pillar, the structures, and anything else in the building or the house, they're going to crumble and collapse in any storm. This is true whether it's in the field of architecture let me jump from there. Or in the field of agriculture, which Paul mentions. He says roots. Make sure you root it. 
Oh, roots are very important to plants, right, gardeners? Right, gardeners? I know there's one or two here. I know this would put you to sleep, so I don't blame you. Snooze on. Without roots, plants die. Without roots, trees are up. You ever see these great, big, huge trees that have gone down in the last big windstorm? And you say, how can anything that big, that strong, that... how Because you, when you saw the tree, you probably also saw the roots laying there. And if the roots aren't healthy, the tree's not healthy. If the roots aren't alive, that plant's not going to be alive. Water... And, 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 and trees get uprooted and water can be, can be wasted and storms are threatening and slopes will slide. Hello. Without roots, the plant has no depth. It has no nutrients. It has no future. You might as well mark it dead. And in the same way, churches decline. I had to get to this and I finally did, but churches decline. And listen to this. Oh, I, I don't want to say this and I hope I don't have to hear myself. Churches die. And I'm not even going to pick on the rest of the world, but all over the United States, thousands of churches are closing their doors permanently every week. Churches decline. And churches die. Because they're not built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and with Christ Jesus himself, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.20, as the chief cornerstone. And if they're not built on the precious precepts of the word of God and they do not have Jesus Christ as their pure and only chief cornerstone, they will crumble. And they will spiritually die. Intellectual deception or delusion is an enemy to the church. Always remember that. The beguilers of the church dress their deception up with fine-sounding arguments. Even in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, he was commenting on that. Don't listen to fine-sounding arguments, he said. Or don't listen to persuasive words. These people think they're clever. Don't do it. The way to handle persuasive arguments, he says, is the Colossae way, verse 5, with order or discipline and firmness of faith in Christ. And that latter one means steadfastness. We have to be steadfast in that faith. Paul didn't say we're to hear them or not and just go running. Paul didn't say, well, when they come, you're to be fearful. He didn't say to fear them. He said to face them with order and with faith. You see, the key is in Christ, not with logic or with fine-sounding words. And I'm afraid that much of our world and much of the church today has been swept away with that. Now, let's see what, the, what, the, what else Paul says in Colossians to the believers. He's talking to them specifically, and he's talking to us, of course. And I'm starting to read at verse 8 of Colossians 2. Still there. See to it that no one takes you captive. Boy, that's an important word. Through, it's other times in Scripture, but never used in the same sense it is here. No one takes you captive the, uh, through hollow, deceptive philosophy, ah, which depends on human tradition, it does, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Hmm. 
Also in May of 2008, scientists finally completed analyzing the DNA of the platypus, a creature native to Australia. How many have heard of the platypus? Yep, yep. Defies categorization under bird, reptile, or mammal. The platypus is so odd, when the first specimens were sent to Europe in the 19th century, some, some scientists suspected a hoax. Because a platypus has a bill and web feet, like a duck. It lays eggs like a bird or reptile. But it also produces milk and has a coat of fur like a mammal. Even its DNA is an amalgam of genes. A group of almost 100 scientists studied this. A female platypus collected and analyzed her DNA and found that her genome contains about 18,500 genes similar to some other vertebrates and about two-thirds the size of the human genome. The platypus shares 82% of its genes with the human. Aren't you glad? The mouse, the mouse, uh, the dog, the possum, and the chicken. What a mixture, huh? Wow, wow, wow. What a combination, huh? You know, thinking of the platypus brings to mind one of Christianity's, uh, Christianity's greatest setbacks, and that's the adulteration of the gospel of Christ. The diluted message, the detoured facts, and the decaffeinated version of who God is and what he does. The devil's clever adage and agenda is and always has been, if you cannot beat them, join them. Mm. The Christian message today is no longer Christ alone. Oh, I'm so sad to say these words. Now it's Christ in philosophy. Now it's Christ in psychology. Now it's Christ in pluralism. Now it's Christ in prosperity. Now it's Christ in positivism. Now it's Christ in politics. And on and on and on. It's not Christ alone. It's Christ and. And unfortunately, many believers have blend their Christianity like they do their mochas and their smoothies. They just mix everything in and stir it up. Here's what Paul uses. He uses the see-to-it approach, or he says, beware to warn believers of associating or allying or assimilating with hollow, deceptive philosophy using the same urgency and warning he gives concerning building the church's foundation on Christ, living the wise and not unwise way, and not turning one's freedom into a stumbling block. He used that word in verse 8, captive. It's only occurrence in the Bible where it means spoil or booty. Many people pride themselves in being Renaissance people today, exposing themselves to varieties and levels of, of religious experiences and learning models and social experimentation in the name of diversity and pluralism. Paul warns against being captive instead of being critique. Philosophy, ah, you know that word, philosophia, the love of wisdom. Wisdom is virtuous, but the love of wisdom is vanity. Wisdom is skill, but philosophy is subjective. 
Wisdom is godly. Love of wisdom is grandiose. Hollow, he uses that word in verse 8, means nothingness, nothing. Deceptive, he uses, is nothing masquerading as something. The Bible's list of deceit includes the deceitfulness of wealth, of desires, of evil, of unrighteousness, of sin, and of pleasures. You might ask, well, why reject philosophy, traditions, and off-base worldviews? Why not be more open to all those things? Because all we need to know, my friend, and all we need to learn, my friend, and all we need to have, my friend, for life and living, who we are and what we have, is in Christ. It's all there. And that's why Paul uses the preposition in as in Christ, verse 9. That's critical to Paul's emphasis on Christ in the chapter. He said, live in him. Here it is. Rooted and built up. And intelligence, therefore, your intelligence must be in Christ. So, bring it down. I'm going to leave a proverb with you. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The reformers of old passionately declared that there were five, what they call solas. Five solas. This comes from the 16th century. The first sola was Christ alone. The second sola was scriptures alone. The third sola was, uh, sola was faith alone. The fourth sola was grace alone. And the fifth sola was glory to God alone. Christianity is about Christ alone, but all in all, and nobody and nothing else matters, period. Christianity is about Christ alone, and nobody or nothing else really matters. He's a person, he's not a philosophy. Jesus is a person. He's our salvation. He's our significance. He's our strength. He's our success. So I wonder, friend, I wonder, are you deceived in the same way those believers at Colossae were thinking of being? Or, and are you in the cravings of sinful man or the lust of the eye or the boasting of what you've done or who you are or what you have? Is your pride in learning or books or intelligence or position or your significance, your strength, and your success grounded in and governed by Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ, yes, Christ, and Christ alone. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of the scripture. Thankful we are this morning for what you mean and what Jesus means in these lives of ours. For anyone that's here today and trusting anything or anybody for salvation other than Jesus, we pray for their soul salvation. We pray for them to see their need and to turn to Jesus. And then for those of you that are here today, you've heard the message, you've accepted the challenge, you've listened 
with open ears and open heart. And I pray today that something will take root so that you yourself can be rooted and grounded in the faith of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.